1: Look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. No! Oh my God, how could he do that? Are oh my. you on Donate to- What?
0: Charles Darwin. Welcome, everybody, back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever, and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today, we've got some important NBA topics to discuss. So, for the first half of the show, we're going to keep it with a format that we love here at Nerd Sesh NBA this or that is really what we call it, and it's pretty straightforward. I give two alternatives, Logan, you take one or the other. And let's start with one that I think is a very Nerd Seshy topic. Would you rather start with what the Orlando Magic have right now if you're building your franchise up from here or with what the Detroit Pistons have? You know,
1: Carson, I thought it was pretty close, but I'm going to go with the Orlando Magic after the moves that they pulled uh, at the deadline uh, Mm -hmm. with the Chicago Bulls. And I think it's, uh, I don't know, I think they definitively uh, pulled ahead of what the Pistons have. Personally, I just think they have more pieces that uh, produce winning basketball right now. You've got uh, three really solid big men uh, that I think will continue to develop. Uh, obviously, the big piece, I think, out of this is Jonathan Isaac, who can be a transcendent defensive uh, wing, and if he, if his shot comes along, he is a extremely valuable piece to have on a championship contending roster. Uh, again, he can clamp down on one side of the end. Uh, on the other side, he knocks down his catch-and-shoot attempts. I love a guy like Wendell Carter Jr. He's a tremendous role man. He's a great rebounder. He uh, plays a lot of gritty defense. He's a still a little undersized, and I'd like him to be a little more of an athlete for uh, a guy who's uh, you know, maybe not, uh, you know, he doesn't have his, he's not like Mobamba size, right? He's 6'9", you know, mm-hmm. uh, his arms aren't as large, but he's he's a really skilled big man for where he is right now. Again, if his shot comes along, he's a weapon. And I love a guy like Mobamba. He's still a great shot blocker. I think he's a, a great rim runner as well. And I think he's got a lot of defensive upside. But those three guys are important to this equation. The two guys that really sell at home for me over the Detroit Pistons young core is Cole Anthony and Markel Fultz, just mm-hmm. because... These two guys have these skill sets to drive scoring at a really high level. I mean, Cole, you know Cole Anthony's one of my favorite guys. I compared this guy to Damian Lillard before the draft. If that comp comes through, if that pays off, obviously I love what Orlando has. Cole isn't there yet, but he's a tra- he's a great difficult shot maker. You know, I don't think Orlando has that playmaking piece that they need now in this young core, but I don't really think that matters. And, again, I don't think it stacks up to uh, what Detroit uh, – uh, I don't think what Detroit has stacks up uh, quite as well. I mean, I like Killian Hayes, I like Sadiq Bey, and I like Isaiah Stewart, but those guys compared like to Wendell Carter, Isaac, and Bamba, I'm taking the Magic's big three, and then the next three young guys and Saban Lee, Sekou Boy, and Josh Jackson, I don't think they'd quite compare to Cole Anthony, Markel Fultz, and guys like R.J. Hampton and Chuma Okiki whatsoever. I think I'd take the Magic all day long. Now, if we see a really big jump, uh, at the end of the season or next year by Killian Hayes. Maybe my answer changes because I was really high on that kid coming into the draft. Mm-hmm. That being said, right now, I don't think it's close. I'm taking the Orlando Magic's young core.
0: So I'm going to take the Magic as well, but I actually do think it's close. And I think that the distinction is what you touched on. It's the difference in the depth of talent. I think there are six guys who the Magic have right now, 22 or younger, who can really be contributors to this team long term. And I would also shout out a guy like RJ Hampton who plays really hard great athlete, good decision maker. I think his shot looks fine. He's been putting up Ted a game on 30% from three in Orlando. Now the swing trade is always going to be that shot, but if the shot comes around, that's a really talented young player. And I don't know if I could put Mo Bamba in a quote, big three of prospects, despite being an advocate of Mo Bamba at this point, I said that I bought half of my stock in him back just because I think offensively he has shown a lot of skill from the perimeter, but defensively still so far away and offensively still needs to become more aggressive on the interior. It seems like he's always popping when they use him as a roll man. And so he doesn't really have that post-game still. So I really love Wendell Carter Jr. And I think Jonathan Isaac has already proven himself to be a stud, and that is definitely something that works in favor of the Magic. I think that what Chumo Kiki has done as a really strong all-around player, putting up 12-5-3 over his last 11, has been impressive. And, yeah, even guys like Bomba have had their flashes. Cole Anthony is not ready, obviously, yet, but he's been put in a situation where he has to try to produce, and the efficiency isn't there, and the decision-making isn't always there. But he's at least getting out there, and he's getting reps, and he's clearly a talented guy. So there's a lot going for Orlando. So can
1: I clarify, who is your third guy out of that group, then?
0: I don't know that there is a big three, but I might have Cole Anthony above Mo Bamba. I don't know. I think that at the top of these groups, the Pistons are probably stronger, in my opinion. Maybe I can't get there because of the duo of Isaac and Wendell Carter Jr., who I'm very confident will be good players. But, Logan, as you just glare at me, Killian Hayes is going to be a stud. And if you don't think that he's going to be a stud, I think that you're still wrong at this point. And obviously we lost him very early in the season to injury. But since coming back, putting up 6.5 points and 4.3 assists per game on 38% from the field, and yeah, that's not very good production. The assist numbers are pretty impressive for a rookie, no question. And the production is lagging behind, but his tools are outstanding. And it's everything that we saw of him before he came to the draft. And really all those traits, I would say, have still been on display in the NBA. The pace out of the pick and roll, the change in pace, the floaters, the step back. And the passing is the trait that just makes you say this guy cannot fail. The variety of angles, the touch, the pace, he's just a special creator. He's also had a 5-steal game and a 4-steal game in that stretch, which I just think speaks to quick hands, good defensive instincts, also his length there. I think he has like a 7-foot wingspan. And I will also say, Logan... Sadiq Bey is kind of a prototypical 3 and D wing at this point at 22 years old, putting up 11 a game on better than 38% from three, already making 2.3 threes per game. I want that guy on my team every time. That dude's not a prototypical. He is in.
1: He's an elite 3 and D wing already. I mean, we haven't seen many rookies. I mean, like he's like the
0: greatest rookie shooter of all time. Mm-hmm. And then I will say the third guy who makes it competitive between certainly any big three. Isaiah Stewart has been really productive on the year, and he was a guy, Logan, who I didn't like all that much coming out of the draft, but I think he has pretty definitively proven my doubts wrong, and I guess for me it was just, is he going to be mobile enough to guard the pick and roll at a high level? Is he actually going to bring me any value as a floor spacer? Because the shot was something that looked solid, but he hadn't really consistently hit them in college. Now he's putting up 7-6 and six on 58% from the field, and he's 11-26 of 26 from three. That shot is coming. I think he's still only 19, and he's already making 40-plus percent of his threes, and yeah, he's not taking a bunch of them, but he will be soon enough, and a really good athlete on the interior, a really good role man, a smart guy who plays hard, swallows up boards, has that shooting touch, so I like him a lot. And then outside of that, Seku, I don't know, he really hasn't shown any improvement, I think is still so far away, and I can't completely discredit it because of his ability at times to handle and play, make, and shoot at his size, but more often than not, he doesn't do any of those things well, and that's starting to look more and more like a really tough first-round pick. And I'll ask you this, Logan. Does Jeremy Grant factor into your ranking between these two teams at all? Because he's 27. So I don't know how much value he has long term, but he is damn good and should be damn good for another five plus years at least. Yeah,
1: I mean not at all. It, okay, ju- it's simply just because I don't think Jeremy fits up with the timetable for the Pistons in this young core. Okay, uh, I do want to touch on a guy you brought up though, dude. I loved Isaiah Stewart. Um, you know I saw some of him in the G League. And such, and I think you touched on the big thing. His shot is coming along; mm-hmm. he looks confident in it, and he's taking more and more as the season progresses. I mean, I think in his first, you know, ten games or so, he only took two, and we've seen uh, obviously uh, his volume uptick. But mm-hmm. on top of that, dude, Isaiah is a dominant low pro- post presence for already such a young guy. He is yep. a great rebounder. He just had twenty-one boards against the Thunder. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that they, ha- I think the Pistons have their pick and roll duo over the future in Hayes and
0: Stewart already yeah. right now and a pretty darn good shooter to operate off of that as well. So that's where I think the case for the Pistons comes. It's three really, really solid pieces. But, again, I think the Magic of six guys with that potential. Who is your number one player between these two teams? I think it's still Jonathan Isaac. I I th- just, just because yeah. of athleticism, size,
1: and what he can be, I think is uh, – I still think his ceiling is higher than any of these other
0: guys. I think it's Isaac, too. But it's a competition for me between him, Carter, and Killian Hayes. And by the way, we've said it before, but that Bulls-Vooch trade looks worse and worse by the day as Wendell Carter Jr. continues to play like he has just his all-around ability. If he can figure out the shot, I think it is pretty much a done deal. That is a great NBA player. And I would honestly say Hayes gives pretty stiff competition for the number 1 spot overall in my opinion just because I don't think he's given much to indicate that he's not the prospect we thought he was coming out of, I believe, the B League in Germany. Like, he was never going to be able to immediately contribute at a high level. But here he is actually handling the ball and making good decisions and showing really impressive traits as a rookie. So his development track, I think, still bodes pretty well. I think the big thing
1: on Hayes, if he is going to be the prospect that we thought he was, I think it's going to have to come with his scoring inside the arc. Like, I trust his shot to come along. I think it's going to have to be... He's either going to have to get really good at exploding to the rack Mm -hmm. and finishing at the rim, or he's going to have to develop a really consistent floater and mid-range shot. I mean, I'm confident either of those tools are going to come along, but I think that's really what separates him, because he's not blazing quick uh, off of a screen and getting into the lane.
0: I think it's the latter, though, and I think that this is what it was when he was coming out as a prospect. It's the D-lo bag, and that's what my comparison for him always was, and I just think he can be a better facilitator. But I think that that in-between area, I think he's going to have a nasty floater. I think he already shows really touch on it, really nice touch on it sometimes. He's going to have the step back. So I think he'll be able to get his own shot and get some buckets. All right. There is this or that, number one. How about this one, Logan? This was inspired actually by a question that my good buddy Carvel Teft, who's been on the show before, asked me unprompted, who would you rather have on your team right now, Steph Curry or Luka Doncic? And I'll say for myself – I initially molded over and I barely leaned Luca, but my answer has changed. That's a spoiler, but who do you have between those two?
1: My answer has also changed. I thought after Luca's I mean maybe the greatest shot ever uh, to win a game, <laughs> I thought maybe that, that may sway my vote here just because uh at the end of the games it's pretty close, but then I actually started looking at uh clutch moments for both of these guys. Mm-hmm. Steph has more points, he's more efficient, uh Four points on 46% shooting uh, from the field and 50% shooting from deep in the clutch. Luca's putting up three points a night on 45% from the field and 30% from deep. So Steph has just been more efficient in those big moments. And honestly, Carson, I think you could make a case for Steph over everybody mm-hmm. over this last stretch. I mean, over the last nine, Steph's putting up 39, nearly 7, 5 on 55, 47, 92 shooting splits. And... Would I rather have a guy who is a dominant scorer, who is a really great shooter, who is a great off-ball relocator, who's, again, shot I don't have to trust to come along? That is the distinction between it. I think that mm-hmm. Luka is obviously the better playmaker right now, but with the added value and you know not having to worry about that shot, Luka's just not a dominant enough three-point shooter to where I would take him over a guy like Steph. And again, with how dominant he has been of recently... I think it's close, but I'm always going to lean Steph when he is balling out like this.
0: Yeah, I think that the greatest advantage Steph has is just the malleability that you have as far as what kind of team you can build around him. You can bring in Kevin Durant, or you can build a championship team in which Steph is – Your primary ball handler and can be the best pick and roll scorer in basketball, which I think he's shown this year. He's been the most efficient pick and roll scorer at the volume that he operates out of the pick and roll in basketball. Then he can also be the greatest off-ball shooter of all time, obviously. So I honestly feel foolish for not having had him in our top five players list that we did to start the year. I think that his offensive value surpasses any of the two-way value that a guy like Anthony Davis has because he can just be the centerpiece of so many different contenders in so many different ways. And... You talked about the difference in the shot. When Luka's on fire from three, it's very hard to deny him because he just becomes completely and utterly unstoppable. You cannot stop him from getting into the lane. You cannot stop him from making incredible passes and creating so much for others. And when you can't stop him from stepping back and knocking those down in your face either, he's just a pretty much perfect offensive player. And he can just exert himself as an individual force more than Steph, I would say, and maybe carry a team a bit more easily because of that. But Steph has repeatedly... Time and time again throughout his career shown that just nobody else can impact winning quite like he does. His career on off splits, Logan, his teams are plus 11.8 points per 100 better with him on the floor than off it. That's better than LeBron. That's better than Chris Paul. That's over twice KD and Harden's marks. It's over three times what Luke is this year. I think it's the best mark ever. Now, I can't confirm that because unfortunately you can't search on off splits like that, but I went through basically every relevant player of this generation, and since they started tracking it, And he was a cut above the pack pretty consistently. Actually, Kevin Garnett is up there, I believe, as well. But the Warriors even actually outscore people by slightly more with Steph on the floor this year than the Mavs do with Luka. And so there's just so much that he's done to carry this team. And we know that carrying a team isn't theoretically even his strong suit. It's amplifying talent when he can be that off-ball presence and when there are guys who can take advantage of the spacing he gives you. So... I think Steph has proven that he is the guy right now. Obviously, you're starting a franchise. You're taking Luka Doncic miles ahead of anybody else in all of basketball, in my opinion. And I do think there very well may be a day in which he goes down as the better of the two here because he just gets to a LeBron level of single-handedly carrying a team where it's, yeah, you're not malleable enough, but you're going to be in title contention no matter what. And he's not that far away, but... Right now, I would still lean Steph.
1: Dude, I cannot wait for the offseason when the Mavericks just empty their pockets and get Luka this second guy. Yeah. Because it's over for the league once that
0: happens. I honestly cannot wait to see it as well. And the Mavs are a team that was really hot, and now they've sort of had some hot and cold performances, still trying to make that push for the sixth seed. But Luka every single night is pretty remarkable. And that's what's messed up, man. The Mavericks, whether the
1: Mavericks win or lose is dependent on really two factors. It's are the guys around Luka going to shoot well? Yeah. And... Is Luka going to be able to hit a big shot when we need it late in the game? And I just want someone to relieve that pressure off of him so the
0: Mavericks can actually go out and contend for a title. I agree, because they are still a ways away from that. But at the same time, we've got to remind ourselves, the window is not closing anytime soon because he's very, very young.
1: As we saw with Dirk, the window is probably going to be open for about 20 years here in Dallas.
0: Yes, the window probably will be open for quite some time. Let me ask you a follow-up question here, Logan, because we've seen, obviously – Steph just go absolutely berserk as of late, and we've seen some Warrior success come along with it over the last few games. They're 27-21 and 21 when he plays. Would they have been a contender this year if Klay Thompson were healthy? Oh, hell yeah. Okay, define contender. What tier is that in? <laughs> okay, I don't mean that they're going to be
1: contending for a championship, but I think that they're in that scrappy trailblazers kind of spot where we're like, man, they could maybe you know, give the Clippers or uh, the Nuggets a run in the first round. I mean...
0: I'll be honest, I don't consider that a contender. Do you consider the Blazers with the 29th best defense in basketball a contender? No,
1: I am just saying that that is, I think, the clear distinction out West. They are the the first team out of contention, in my opinion, out West.
0: Yeah, I think that I agree with that. I think that they would be better than the Blazers, and the reason for that is... They already have the top 10 defense, and when you put another elite shooter out there, that offense just takes a huge jump. Everything changes, because it's not just an elite shooter. It's the second best shooter of all time that obviously empowered so many all-time great offenses before this. And as I mentioned, they're already 27-21 and when Steph plays. A better team, certainly, than their record would suggest, or than their roster would suggest, to be honest. But I still just don't think they crack the top five out west. They don't have the same depth of quality talent, and that's what will always hold this team back. But... Steph is doing enough, I think, to carry them to a ceiling that is certainly higher than what they deserve to have. All right, so we talked about the contenders out west. There is an interesting race shaping up at the top of the conference, and that is between the Utah Jazz and the Phoenix Suns, who are separated by a game and a half, and they've been really in a similar tier for a while now, and they've both been hot basically since the first 20 games nonstop. Utah's been hot the entire year, but the Suns, after starting slow, have just been on fire Unfortunately, we did hear Donovan Mitchell will be missing sometime with a sprained ankle. The good news is it's only a sprained ankle. But, Logan, given that injury, who finishes the one seed out west? Is it the Jazz or the Suns?
1: Um, I'm still going to take the Jazz, and I think the Donovan Mitchell injury is still the only thing that makes it close. Um, the big reason why here, and I don't want to undersell what Donovan Mitchell has been doing. I mean, post-All-Star break, this kid's been up near 30 points a night on extremely efficient shooting. So this is a big blow for the Utah Jazz. I just trust them to to replace Donovan's uh I trust him to replace his scoring somewhat. I mean, with a bench as deep as this, when you can plug in a guy like Jordan Clarkson, when you can let Mike Conley take over a little more, I still think this team is going to be successful. Also, they're still an elite defense. The deciding factor to me, because this team, both of these teams are extremely comparable across the board. Post-All-Star break, uh, the Jazz have the third best defensive rating. The Suns have the sixth best. Offensive rating post-All-Star break, the Suns are third, the Jazz are fourth. This is a super tightly contested race. Mm-hmm. I am going to go with Utah for, again, a few reasons. I think that they can replace uh, Donovan's scoring output uh, pretty easily. And but The big reason, though, Carson, was that the Suns have the third toughest schedule yeah. remaining uh, the rest of the season. And, again, we saw how tough of a stretch it was. And, uh, look, the Suns have been hot, man. Devin Booker has still been continuing to be unreal. Paul has been an excellent playmaker. Enough so that some people, for some reason, think that He's an MVP candidate? Yeah. I don't really understand that push yet. Um, Really, it came down to scheduling for me, though. The Jazz have the 29th uh, remaining strength of schedule. The Suns are third. So I just think it's going to be a little tougher road for Phoenix uh, thus far. And honestly, I trust the Jazz's team defense a little more overall than Phoenix. So those are really the deciding factors, although the Donovan
0: Mitchell injury does make this race a little bit closer. Yeah, I just think that when you look at, Mitchell in the MVP conversation, as you touched on, because I want to address that first. It would be like giving Chauncey Billups the MVP from one of those oh four through 0-6 Pistons years. You mean you mean Paul? No. What you said, Mitchell? Yeah. I thought that you were talking about Mitchell entering the MVP race. No. Okay. Well, either way, with Chris Paul, honestly, it's a little bit different because I think that the Jazz are the. Well, no, I would open actually open say
1: team. I would say that Mitchell. Maybe I mean. I think Mitchell has an interesting case.
0: I don't think he has a case at all. I think he has more of a case than a guy like Chris Paul. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, actually. Okay, who do you think the most valuable piece on the Jazz is, Donovan Mitchell or Rudy Gobert? In regular season, I think it's Rudy Gobert. And for the Suns, I think it's Devin Booker. So I don't think either of them are even the most valuable player on their own team. So that tells you where I kind of come on on that. But yeah, I guess it's the same logic for either one of them. You're just rewarding the ultimate team, and you're trying to single it down to a single player, and it just doesn't work that way. So... I think that I agree with you here. It's the Jazz, and you mentioned the Suns have the third toughest schedule remaining. The average winning percentage remaining of their opponents, 55.4. And over the next eight games, they still have the Bucks, the Sixers, the Celtics, the Nets, the Knicks, the Clippers, and the Jazz. Not even close to an easy game among those. And meanwhile, the Jazz have the second easiest schedule remaining, so I think they'll be fine. And part of the reason for that is... As we've talked about many times over, their top 7, top 8 is probably the best I've ever seen as far as just depth, versatility, the amount of shooting that you have. You're not losing your top 5 defense at all because, of course, you have Rigo Bear, who is a walking top 5 defense, and the Jazz have actually been 4 points per 100 better without Mitchell on the year, so I think they'll be fine. Yes, this would be a different story come playoff time. I do think they need Mitchell to be that high-level closer and that guy who can take over a game when it comes to trying to beat the best of the best out West. But when you're just trying to cruise through the closing stretch of the regular season and you have the kind of shooting and defense that they have, I think they will be fine no matter what. So we agree there. All right, final question before we get into the break here. Who would you rather have as your best guy in a play-in game right now? And the reason that I ask this is because it might be trending towards this matchup in the 9-10 spot. John Morant or DeMar DeRozan? Uh, honestly, dude, this is such a tough
1: one um, because I think stylistically what they've been doing this season, they're pretty similar guys. Uh, DeMar and Job both don't really have reliable three-point shots at this moment. They're not consistently knocking it down. I am going to go DeMar DeRozan, Carson, simply because in a late-game scenario, I trust him to knock down a shot with his well-developed post game and mid-range touch more than I do Ja. Um, And I think with the playmaking that we've seen out of DeMar this season that their playmaking values are honestly pretty comparable. Um, DeMar's a better finisher at the rack, too, I'd say. So, like, obviously for the future, who do I want? I want Ja Morant for one game. I think at this stage in their careers, I'm taking
0: DeMar DeRozan just because mm. I trust him to knock down a shot more than I do Jaw. Well, I definitely trust him to knock down a jump shot more than I do Jaw, and I think that that is really where his intrigue comes. He probably has that higher end scoring ceiling. He has theoretically that clutch shot making edge and all of that. But I actually think I still take Jaw, and the reason for that is really predicated on his ability to collapse a defense with his overwhelming athleticism, both in transition. And in the half court. And I just think the gravity that comes with that is tremendous. And I really don't think that they are comparable as playmakers to this point. DeRozan has done a great job of dissecting defenses and has really improved there. But I also think he is just the beneficiary of having the ball in his hands a lot. I think that Ja still does jaw-dropping things as a playmaker. Again, sucking in a defense, making mid-air adjustments, kicking it out, throwing these remarkable lobs. And I just have, honestly, a little bit of an invisible faith that he will play his best in the big moments that I don't have in DeMar DeRozan, because I think when Jha really turns on full attack mode, he's going to put constant pressure on the defense in a way that if DeRozan is just settling for mid-range jumpers, and that's not all that he does, obviously he gets downhill a lot as well, but not quite as much or as easily as Jaw does, if those jumpers aren't falling, good luck. Whereas I think that Jaw is just kind of the tireless player who will get downhill time and time again, will finish well when he's at the rim, hopefully doesn't try to turn himself into a jump-shooting player because Obviously, we've seen his tremendous struggles with the pull-up three all year long, where I think he's at like 27% at this point. That has gotten better because he's 10 of 24 in April, but that's also a really small sample size. And so I understand that it's a gamble from that respect. I don't really trust Jaw to make a difficult shot in the big moments, which is a very important skill set to have. And I don't know who that guy becomes for the Grizzlies. It honestly might be Dylan Brooks. But I also just have this kind of feeling internally where in a big game, I don't love having DeRozan as my guy. I went back, I looked through his performance in elim- in elimination games throughout his career, which is what this would be. A 9-10 playing game is an elimination game, just like a Game 7 of the playoffs. And he's put up 20.6 points per game on 40% from the field and has a 2-6 and six record in those spots. I believe that's correct. I gathered those stats myself, so forgive me if it's not. But I just think that shows you sometimes he has the tendency to try to overimpose himself on a game, and the shots just don't fall. And if they aren't falling, I don't know how great his value is. Now, he's a better player than he ever was previously because of the playmaking value. But I just think with Jaw, the offense can be a little more reliable, a little more high percentage. And yes, I have my concerns about him in the clutch, but I don't think it's enough to override what I'm getting for the first 40-something minutes.
1: Yeah, I understand the concern with DeMar's track record. Um Honestly, what it came down to me is what I already said. Uh, I trust DeMar more in a jump shot situation. Ja is shooting 23% on pull-up jumpers this season. Terrible. He's shooting 41% from the mid-range compared to DeMar. DeMar is shooting 53% on pull-ups and 48% out of the Mm mid-range. In those late-game scenarios, and that's what I'm thinking of, if the Spurs get down to to the nitty-gritty, man, when I need a a tough shot in the mid-range, I'm going DeMar all day. I Mm just— I get that DeMar is not the playmaker man that the Jaw is but I, that that jumper is so important I think in this equation man.
0: I agree with you. I guess honestly a lot of it does come down to just a difference in dog that I feel like there is between the two of them. I just trust Jaw as a competitor a lot and I trust him because of again that ability to collapse a defense time and again when he's fully motivated. And maybe it's a little irrational because of the clutch shot-making edge that DeRozan has, but I just don't love a DeMar DeRozan-led offense, although the Spurs have been good there this year, better than the Grizzlies. So maybe it's irrational, and maybe it's favoring what Ja could be. And I honestly thought initially that I was going to take DeRozan, but I talked myself out of it, and I just want the guy who can impose himself on a game the most in a way that is effective and conducive to winning in a single-game format because I do think best player is going to win you a lot of those games. It's not always going to be the best team when it comes down to one or done, sometimes it's who can will you to that victory. And I kind of just trust Jaw to do that a little bit more.
1: Who is the, for, for both of these teams, I mean, do you think in these late game scenarios, do they rely on anybody else?
0: No, definitely not the Spurs, I wouldn't think. And for the Grizzlies, maybe they just play it by committee as they kind of do throughout the season. Obviously, they are not the team that they are just because of Jaw. They are the team that they are because they have a tremendous depth and also just a really strong defensive identity and they're well coached and they are the ultimate machine in a lot of ways. But I do think Ja can take over a game. It's not consistent enough. Maybe I shouldn't trust it, but I'm going to trust it. I want
1: to ask you one question really quick about the Grizzlies Mm -hmm. uh, as a team. Do you think that they would be like in this, I guess, would they be out of this play-in range if they were fully healthy with a guy like Jaron Jackson Jr. and Justice Winslow?
0: Well, Justice just doesn't look like he's all the way there yet and I think that he still needs to figure that out. Triple J, I don't know, man. You think you have your second-best player who can have that kind of two-way impact. Two-way impact when he's playing his best defensively. He still has his issues there, even though that should really be his strength as a player. But it's just a very reliable floor spacer who can give you 20 on basically any night. Yes, I think that they would be better than that. I think that they would be in the... Actually, I guess kind of where they are right now because they're the eight seed. They're not leapfrogging the Mavs. And so maybe they're a couple games better as the eight seed and they don't have to go into the 9 10 play in. But I still think that they are the eight seed and they're losing in that initial play in game if it's against the Mavs or the Blazers. And then you're still playing for your life against whoever wins that 9 10 game.
1: What do you think the biggest need uh, for the Grizzlies is moving forward?
0: Well, I think that as we touched on a lot last year, they're just going to need that real alpha score because I don't think that that's Jaw. And I don't think that it's Triple J. I don't think his game is refined enough inside of the arc. And I think the jaw is going to need to come a long way as a pull-up jump shooter. So I don't know, man. Get Bradley Beal. That's my pitch to every team in the NBA. Get Bradley Beal. So easy to fit in any offense. And that's the kind of guy who the Grizzlies are going to need.
1: Sure, just go ahead and overlook Grayson Allen and Desmond Bain, please. You hate
0: Grayson Allen. I do hate Grayson Allen. You're exactly right. He's the alpha scorer for this team? Yeah, love it. easily. Come on. I love it. I'm going to have to agree to disagree on that one. But there we go. That was NBA This or That. On the other half of the break, we're still going to be answering some pressing NBA questions on our mind. You are listening to Nerd Sesh on Blaze Radio and blazeradioonline.com. Welcome, everybody, back into Nerd Sesh. From that little break that we had there, we are keeping, of course, with our NBA discussion here. And, Logan, the first question that I'm going to ask you is related to a team that has been very troubling throughout this entire season, and have just been really tough to figure out. They've had some injury stuff, they've been dealing with a new coach on the season, but Logan, what has this year told us about the Indiana Pacers' future, and with the precarious position they're in, are they going to be in the actual playoffs, meaning the top eight teams when we get to that best-of-seven format? when all is said and done this year?
1: So, to start with the playoff question, I don't really think the Pacers have a prayer unless they draw the Hornets. Really? If they end up with the Hornets, I think that uh, they've got a good chance at winning that matchup just because the Hornets
0: aren't at full health. So you don't think that they can beat the Bulls in the 9-10 game? Because the Bulls are not getting out of the 10 spot. They're not even in the 10 spot right now. The Raptors just passed them. It's going to be a –
1: it'll be close, but – In that scenario, I don't know, man. The Bulls and Pacers just have such
0: atrocious defenses. Atrocious? No. Average. Middling. For the Pacers. But that's a big drop-off from what they've been, which is very consistent top 10 upper echelon defense. I don't know. In a a
1: one-game playoff, man, I still like Levine and Vucevic against the Pacers. Against the Raptors, whatever, man. Just give the other team the win. I don't don't trust the Raptors to do anything. Mm -hmm. As for the future... Dude, the Pacers, I've said this before, I think it reinforces the idea that the Pacers are one star away from contention. Mm -hmm. If they get a... (laughs) I was just going to say like a Paul George. That was the first guy that I thought of. (laughs) If they bring Paul George back to Indiana, they'll win some games. I don't know who would want to go out and play in Indiana. If they can get a big dog, this is going to be a... I'm going to say it, man. I think they're a final contending team if they get a, a big star because I think all the pieces or around them here you've got a lot of really good catch and shooters and mm-hmm. TJ McConnell, Malcolm Brogdon, Aaron Holiday. Um you've got a a secondary shot creator in a guy like Karis LeVert who Carson you were really high on especially when this trade went down. What I have seen out of LeVert man, I have been really impressed. A few 20 point games here so far. He is so good at getting into the lane, getting that mid-range shot off, getting to the rack. I'm he's just a joy to watch out there, and I think he'd be a reliable second weapon when you need tough buckets down the line. That's uh, not even mentioning a guy like T.J. Warren, who is also good in that same fill-it-up, get-a-bucket role. You have got your floor-spacing big man, who um, since the All-Star break, Miles Turner is shooting 43% on catch-and-shoot threes, 41% on catch-and-shoot attempts in general. He is a dominant rim protector. Um, and And then when you have guys like Malcolm Brogdon and DeMontis Sabonis, who were just really solid at doing everything on offense, Sabonis, such a good post playmaker, such a well-developed post game. Again, like, I, I don't like DeMontis uh, defensively, but when you need tough buckets down there in the low post, those, those points are valuable. He's also a good floor spacer. I mean, the Pacers are really talented top to bottom. I just, All I think they're missing is that star, and I think they will be in contention out east. I don't know who that star will be. If they land him, though, I might pick him to the finals.
0: I agree with you. They're one star away, and I think that that is the takeaway. And with the tremendous success that they had last year that was exciting in a lot of ways, you did it with a young core, I understand why they said let's just run it back for the most part. And obviously, you were getting Oladipo back healthy, you didn't know how much that was going to help you, and then you trade Oladipo, you bring in Levert, you don't know how much that is going to help you. It certainly hasn't helped you enough, I wouldn't say. And I think that what we've learned is they have just built their offense around a duo that is not dynamic enough to actually propel a really good NBA offense. Last year, they were a below-average offense, but because they were the number 6 defense in basketball, they were able to have that success, and now the defense isn't good enough to compensate. You fall from 6th to 13th there, and Sabonis and Brogdon have both gotten better and this team offense has gotten better, but it's just the defense, and I think that you're never going to win a championship on the back of a defense anyways, for the most part. You need to have that dynamic offense. I say that as the Lakers won a championship predicated on defense last year, but as we talked about, their offense still got up to that elite level come playoff time, and they had two unstoppable offensive forces at the top of it, and the reason that I think that they could do it, Logan, and obviously what's brutal about this is you have to do it in Indiana, and Finding somebody who is going to want to come to Indiana is going to be next to impossible, even if you have a good infrastructure. What you're going to have to do is go out there and trade for somebody. But they can do it because of the incredible value that they have on the books right now. They only owe Brogdon and Sabonis $40 million combined per year for the next two years. That is unreal. Those are two guys who are all-star level. Sabonis has been an all-star the last couple of years. Brogdon is always one of the first guys out of that conversation. And alongside them, you also have Turner and Levert, both at like $18 million per for the next two years. So that's pretty good, but your window is now, because you're not going to be able to control all of these guys simultaneously going forward. That's just not possible. While you also, by the way, have the best bench in basketball, and that is what has kept them alive with guys like McDermott and the Holiday Brothers, and of course, TJ McConnell, the captain of it all, who makes it all go. And just the depth of talent here is what is fantastic. You have Jeremy Lamb still on a reasonable contract. T.J. Warren hasn't even played. He's on a really good contract, but a lot of those are expiring very, very soon. And the shape of this roster is going to look very, very different after next year. So I think you have to go all in this offseason. And yes, I think the target has to be Bradley Beal. I cannot think of somebody who would fit more easily into this team offensively, who can cut off ball like that, who can be that catch-and-shooter and that alpha-scorer late that they still need, because Brogdon's a bonus I don't think can be your number one options, and he doesn't disrupt the depth all that much, and you have the assets to go get him, in my opinion. Turner, Levert, Picks, these are really intriguing guys. You want to give up Turner? I would give up Turner. I, I would. Mean,
1: I think he's an invaluable part of this equation.
0: Because of the defensive value, I think that there's a case to be made, but when it comes down to getting Bradley Beal, I think that you got to do what you got to do.
1: Yeah, I just feel like his value is so tough to replace. I mean, I love this pitch, if they can land Bradley Beal, because I think the biggest need for this Indiana team is just, you need someone to take the ball out of Malcolm Brogdon's hands, and Mm -hmm. I don't mean that in a bad way, because I love Malcolm Brogdon, I love what he is as a point guard, but... When he has to have the rock in his hands all the time, if you put a really good playmaker around him in Bradley Beal, because we've seen how he has grown this season as a playmaker, Brogdon was a 40% catch-and-shooter in Milwaukee. He's been a 40% Mm catch-and-shooter. Like, you're losing value because you're not using him as much as he should be off-ball. Brogdon can't be your primary offensive creator. He's a
0: damn good second one and an Mm -hmm. elite catch-and-shooter. I love it. I hope this happens. And let me say, I think that the guy to give up would probably be Levert because I think a team can talk themselves long-term into saying he could be even more impressive than what Miles Turner could be because the dude is stupid skilled offensively, stupid skilled. Is he stupid efficient, though? No, and I think they need to find a way to integrate him better into this offense right now because he is a guy who needs to have the ball in his hands a lot, and he is going to have to be, in my opinion, either a primary creator for a team or a sixth man and maybe the best sixth man in basketball. And right now I think he could be the sixth man here because he kind of needs to be that bench point guard type. He's not just going to be a wing who you can use off ball a lot. But also, the bench chemistry is so good. TJ is so, so good in that role. I just don't know if that's what you want from him, TJ McConnell that is. And you just need more offensive punch here. And when TJ Warren comes back, that gives you more punch, but he's still primarily an ISO guy. He still doesn't love shooting the three as good as he's gotten at it. It's never going to be his primary weapon. He loves the mid-range, the floaters, all the in-between game, and he's never going to be a good playmaker. Bradley Beal is just a level up across the board there, and I just think you have to do it because it is so painful to flat-out waste a year in the NBA. And that is what they did. And I don't know if firing Nate McMillan was the right move, honestly. I think that forcing yourself to institute really a new culture and system and all of that here was probably overly problematic when you had pretty good results. And Nate McMillan has again showed himself to certainly be an NBA-level head coach. And they've had injuries and whatnot, and I still think they should end up in the playoffs because they're more talented than the Hornets. The Bulls are really struggling, and I just think they have too many good guys to lose one of those games. Although I will say, what I was talking about with the DeRozan jaw factor where it can come down to one guy, going up against Levine and Vooch in a single game scares me. No question about that. But this is just painful for them because it feels like they've taken a step back in a lot of ways even though I think that the talent has gotten better because they just haven't even come close to taking a step forward and you have to be aggressive to do that. What do you think in a
1: hypothetical trade uh, to get Beal? Because honestly, I don't like losing Turner. I don't like losing Lavert. I would prefer to have Lavert come off the bench as my sixth man. I think he'd be great in it.
0: You're not making what, it happen then.
1: What do you, you don't think you could give up, say, like TJ Warren, a Holiday Brother, <laughs> no. and Goga Batazzi, maybe a pick?
0: Maybe a pick, Logan. This is Bradley Beale. In the All right, mix and when of I say, crime. yeah, I'm like saying, I, I don't know where you gauge a guy like, like Goga has extreme upside, right? No one cares about Goga at this point, I'll be honest with Come you. Come on, bruh. Do you think that Goga is going to be an attractive piece in a Bradley Beal trade for a 30-point-per-game score in the midst of his prime? I think Goga along with. Okay. Goga. Goga along with, like, on the floor. Goga along with. Goga along with Lavert in a first. Yeah, I think it makes it close. I don't know, man. I think that it's Lavert. That's why I would prefer to give up between him and Turner just because of the defensive value of Turner and. Obviously, there isn't an ideal fit between him and Sabonis, but I think it's a little bit easier. You don't need that many guys who need the ball, keeping Lavert and TJ Warren, and then also bringing in a guy like Beale and already having Brogdon. That, to me, is overly complicated. And a guy like Sabonis, who's an offensive hub out of the post. I think that you give up Lavert. I think that maybe if you have to, you give up Aaron Holiday, which hurts because Aaron Holiday is really good, but are you going to be able to pay him long-term if he gets to the point where he is a big-money player? I don't know. And then you give up probably... A couple firsts. Maybe you don't have to give up Holiday, or maybe you don't have to give up Lavert. Maybe it's just one of those guys in a couple firsts. But Bradley Beal, to me, even though he's not under contract for a long time, is going to demand a lot of value, especially if you're a team like the Pacers, and they know that they can get assets out of you, good assets. I think that you're just going to have to pay them, and that's the cost of doing business when you're trying to actually contend in this league.
1: Would you give us a bonus and a
0: first straight up for Beal? Hmm. No, I don't think so. Just, I don't know. That would be so weird. That would disturb the entire structure of what they're trying to do. Like, he is clearly their best player at this point, and I don't know if I want to give that up because uh, then you're so perimeter-centric. I don't think that they would want to, though, from the Wizards' perspective. I think they'd be perfectly fine with Levert and then whatever draft capital you can get for the most part, and that is what would get it done, I would think. Okay. So we talked about a team that is still scrapping to make the playoffs. There is another team out west who has consistently performed above their record and just saw a good stat from our fellas at StatMuse, sponsors of the show today. Not really, (laughs) but I wish. God, that would be fantastic. That This team has has the second best record of any team with this bad of a point differential ever, and that is the Portland Trailblazers. But with that overachievement, They have also gotten healthier now, obviously, having had CJ back for a while, having had Yusuf Nurkic back for a little bit. Logan, are the Blazers significantly scarier now that they're fully healthy?
1: I mean, I think that the Portland Trail Blazers in a one-game setting are always going to be terrifying when you have this many guys who can just serve it up by themselves, who can just get buckets. In isolation. I think that they're always terrifying in a one-game setting, but I don't think they're scary in a playoff setting. I think that we're going to see them get ran off the floor probably in the playoffs like we did last season against the Lakers. I mean, mm-hmm. like, yes, they are <laughs> they're decently scary when you have th- three to four guys who in a volume of like 30 minutes a night can serve you 20 points per game. Uh, that's obviously I'm referring to Lillard, McCollum, Powell, and Anthony. And then you've got two really talented offensive centers in Nurkic and Cantor. There's always a danger of getting just outscored, mm-hmm. flat out outdone on the offensive end by the Trailblazers. But I just think we've seen so many defensive limitations. We have seen that there is they don't play defense in Portland. That's yeah. that's it. And I mean for that, I, I hate boxing teams into into that binary of a a box just into that small of a square. I just think the Portland Trailblazers are too bad on the defensive end to where they're not really relevant.
0: Yeah, I'm going to say that they're not significantly scarier. Not like win a playoff series level. They can't do that in this West. But I will say, to their tremendous defensive issues, that side of the ball has been 10.6 points per 100 better with Nurkic out there on the year. And it's been significantly better with him out there every year of his career in Portland, except for the bubble last year when he only played eight games. Just because... He's fine there. It's not like he's a great rim protector, but he's okay, and when you don't have to play Ennis Cantor 27 minutes a game, that is quite a luxury. The Blazers have been 19th in defensive rating since Nurkic came back on this year versus 29th on the season as a whole, and that does matter. That's a meaningful difference. That's the gap between being the Sacramento Kings, who no matter how good they are offensively cannot survive because of the defense and being a team like Last year's Dallas Mavericks or whatever, where obviously they had to be the best offense of all time to do it, but you can compensate for subpar defense because you're so good offensively. I just think we need to see if Nurkic is all there offensively, and if he can play full minutes, because time and again it's been Nurkic playing 27 minutes a game, and at some point you got to be able to get out there and play 36 and actually be that third really crucial guy for your team. But I still think there's reason for optimism because CJ is the best he's ever been, They have the best third scoring option of their tenure as far as CJ and Dame together in Norman Powell. But it still doesn't feel like they're all there. And I don't love Terry Stotts as a coach at this point. I still have too many concerns about their team defense, and I don't know if Nurk is going to be the kind of game-changing force in these playoffs and down the stretch of the season that at his best he can be. But I think that they're getting handled, honestly, by really anybody they come up against in the first round. I just don't think defensively they're good enough, and I think a lot of people are going to have to I don't know, except some cold, hard realities about where the Blazers are at as a team right now. They're just too many defensive liabilities for them to really contend at a high level. I mean, I think this is
1: a good question to throw the one that we asked about the Pacers out. Like, wh- where, do, where do they go from here, Carson?
0: I don't know, man. I honestly don't think you can just pin this on Dame and CJ and say they can't work together when CJ's playing the best he ever has. I think that the issues are defensive there, though. And yeah, having a terrible defensive backcourt is a problem. It's also a lot better than having a terrible defensive frontcourt and having a terrible defensive big man. So I don't know if you can say that that's impossible to fix, but then you bring in guys who are theoretically those 3 and D wings and Roko and Derrick Jones Jr., but they can't shoot. And I don't know. Maybe they get the best 3 and D wings in basketball alongside these two and Nurkic, and then they could be a real contender. But I don't know how reasonable that is.
1: After seeing what you have out of Norman Powell here in Portland, have your thoughts changed
0: on the Gary Trent Jr. deal at all? I like it more for the Raptors, I think, because I just feel like on his best day, Trent gives you more versatility lineup wise. He can guard more positions. Not like he can go out there and guard a four, but I just, his little advantage in size, I think, is somewhat significant. And it's not that Norm's going to be a bad defender. He'll compete there. But I thought that what we saw from last year's bubble, Trent, defensively was really, really impressive. And we didn't see it this season. I talked about how maybe the ego got a little bit more inflated and he just wanted to be that offensive star. But I trusted him to have an impact defensively when locked in. And I think he's a better pure shooter than Powell. And, of course, he's five years younger. So you have a great bucket getter right now in Norm. That's great. He's awesome. He's going to help you but I don't know that he'll help you more even this year than Gary Trent. Maybe a little bit, but I
1: am not so sure. And I still think it was foolish on the behalf of Terry Stotts to never even give that a look, man.
0: So stupid. A guy scores 20 a game when CJ goes out, and CJ comes back and you send him right to the bench. I think that that, and what's crazy, Logan, we talked about this before, so we don't need to get into it, but your defense couldn't be worse, right? You're 29th in defensive rating. Not starting Trent when you guys are fully healthy. So just start Trent, have an unstoppable offense, and then live with that.
1: Yeah, it, instead they started a complete non-factor in Derrick Jones Jr., Yeah, which makes
0: genius sense. Just very frustrating. I'm out on Terry Stotts at this point, but I think that the Blazers are still too far away. They're a team that I was high on preseason. I had them fifth, narrowly edging out Logan. Who else but the Utah Jazz and the Phoenix Suns? Just a brilliant prediction. And it was a brutal decision between the three of them, too. I agonized over it. I had them separated. I think I had the Blazers and the Jazz with the exact same record one game ahead of the Suns. And I really thought about having all different combinations between the trio. And I ended up with the perfect result. I'm in disbelief. Yeah. (laughs) It was a tough take. Okay. Now, we're shifting gears here to something that is rather specific, but I do think is relevant. So we've seen about a dozen games of Kevin Love being back now and obviously missed some extensive time with an injury, maybe a little bit more than he needed to because of the context in Portland. But what do you make of what you've seen from him coming back? Just because obviously, I don't know, we don't really know where the Cavs are headed with him.
1: I mean, it's tough, man. I I think this is, I think, We've seen like eight, uh, eight games consecutively from Love, where we've actually seen him on the floor. He's mm-hmm. put up about fourteen, seven, and three on 40-36-81 uh, splits, and he's shooting thirty percent off the catch of the season. I hate saying this, and I'm hoping it is just uh, ring rust. You know, we just have not seen uh, Love out there on the floor. I think we're seeing him hit his Marcus Aldridge stride, man. Mm -hmm. I I truly think we're getting there with Kevin Love. And I'm not just talking about his hair color. He was looking a little gray out there the other day. Um, He just, one, he's still a step slow. Like, I don't like him defensively anymore. He's still an excellent rebounder. He can serve it up on that end. But there's a few stylistical things. One, he still commands a little too many post touches, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. and that is just not a good look. I'd rather have him out there spacing the floor, moving the rocks, setting screens, doing a lot of little DHO stuff. So uh, I don't like him commanding out of those touches out of the post. That being said, Kevin Love is still an elite post playmaker. Like, I love watching him dot guys up when – if you over rotate, if you let that little sliver of of court open up, L- love is going to dot a guy up. That being said again,
0: I don't like all of those post touches and I would say generous use of the word elite all right good there that's good fine. um i I don't know his athleticism
1: is not there anymore, man it's I think Kevin Love's value is basically going to be in this league. Can he hit a catch and shoot jump shot? Yeah. And I hate that I'm just boxing Kevin Love into that. It is he has reached that age and that stage in his career where he's just not athletic enough to be a force on the defensive end. He's not athletic enough to be a really good rim runner. It's <laughs> we're seeing Kevin. We're seeing I don't know. This is where the NBA the, where the NBA is going, man. We're mm-hmm. seeing these old guys get gamed out, and it, it's sad to see. But if Kevin Love can't consistently hit a jumper, if he stays 30 percent catch and shoot, he's
0: not even worth having uh, on the floor. Well, you said you don't want to box him into that role. He's boxed himself into that. 68% of his shots since coming back from injury are threes, and he's just so limited. Putting up 11 a game on the year on 35% from deep, I will never question the shot, but you talked about him still trying to be that presence out of the post. He just doesn't have the game down there. Um, Young Kevin Love was able to bully people physically. He's not able to do that. He's 20th percentile out of the post thus far, and... That's a pretty small sample size, but I just don't want him creating for himself down there. He can't roll, as you mentioned, as that dynamic threat. And so I think he is headed for exactly what you lined out. It's the Blake Griffin, LaMarcus Aldridge path where the Cavs are going to have to buy him out, and it's just a matter of time, and unfortunately for them, they still have two more years of him under contract making $30 million a pop That is brutal. You are not offloading that contract anywhere because what's going to happen is he'll go to some contender and he'll be fine, and just like we saw from Blake and are seeing from Blake, and arguably what we even saw from LaMarcus, those guys look a little bit revived in those situations. They play a little bit better once they have that kind of talent around them and the incentive to contribute to winning. But I don't even know if he's as valuable as Blake because he does less. I mean, Blake is a guy who for the second unit can handle. He can be that spot-up shooter alongside anybody. He can be that role man and is fine at all those things. I guess the counter would be loves pure shooting, makes him valuable anywhere at any time. But do you see another path? I mean, in two years he's going to get bought out. And he's going to go somewhere midseason, and it's just going to be a brutal wait to get there. I don't know if it's going to be two years, man. I'm. You think they're buying him out with multiple years left on the contract? I'm saying I think it's a possibility next season. Jeez, Louise. Um,
1: and I, like I said, I I didn't want to box him into that role, but I just with his current skill set, I don't know how else he's valuable. Like I mm-hmm. think I think again, like what you mentioned, in a good situation. I think he can succeed, but I think the important thing, man, is we just need to see him try different things. Like, mm-hmm. Kevin, I don't want to see you and uh, – who's the other Cavs big man? Who am I spacing? Jared Dean Allen. Wade.
0: Oh, I thought you were talking about Dean Wade.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry. That one got me, bro. Yeah. Um, I don't want to see him and Jarrett post up down there running a 3-2 set. Kevin, go to the top of the key, man. Mm-hmm. Can you set a screen for me, Kevin? Please. Dear God, just – I just need to see him try to be more dynamic, man. Because I don't think he lasts long as a pure catch and shooter. Also, mm-hmm. it's not that I have questions about his jump shot, man. But the percentages aren't—they aren't
0: kind yeah, right now. But we've seen a decade of it. I don't know how much more we need out of K Love to trust that shot. But I've been thinking about it, and you may be right, man. Because Blake got bought out with still a year and a half left on his contract. That may be exactly what Love is headed for next year, and it's just really sad. These guys who were so great in our childhood, and they're only 32 for Blake, and you can't really be sad about what's happened with Blake. I mean, he's done a good job of adjusting in Brooklyn, and he's contributing, obviously not in a hugely significant way, but he might go out there and get himself a ring. But for Love, just the fact that a couple years ago they were confident giving him four years, $120 and now it's like that guy's a fringe rotation player in the right situation, that's just really tough. Very tough to see for the Cavs, and hopefully they can find a way to offload that contract. Like, not by trade. It's just going to be getting him out of there. Or maybe he is the guy who they want around because he's a leader and, I don't know, has some value as that floor spacer still. But I really like the Cavs' young core. I do not like Kevin Love very much, though. I don't feel bad for the Cavs at all. They handed that contract out. They knew that he didn't match up with their
1: timetable. I don't know. Yeah. It's just more incompetence on the Cavaliers' franchise.
0: No, that's true. No question about that. But it is still a brutal situation I have to deal with now, yeah, I don't really know what they were thinking. I mean, the Kevin Love that we've seen in the last three years, last season he was fine when he was out there, but this year it's just not good. Alright, final question here, Logan. So this is related to, obviously, the ongoing conversation about who are sort of the teams in that contending tier, and we ranked all of our contenders just last week, and we both had the Miami Heat in our top ten Logan, can you still have them in that tier given what we've seen from them offensively on this season?
1: No, I don't think you can. Mm. Um, I mean, 21st in offensive rating since uh, post All Star, and they've been a. It'd be different if the Heat had a top tier defense, if they were, you know, a top five defense, I think even. I think maybe you could justify saying, yeah, I, I could see a world in which the Heat get hot in the playoffs and start knocking down shots. It's just. Those shots aren't being created, man, and I think we underestimated how much of a secondary playmaking role we really need to see in Miami. Uh, at the trade deadline, I thought that that option was going to be Victor Oladipo, mm-hmm. and while I still like Victor Oladipo's skill set, I think we're having I think we have to face a harsh reality, Carson. I don't think Victor Oladipo is ever going to be that solution as a secondary playmaker. I don't Mm. think he solves issues like that, and we've seen teams try to mold that into him. And maybe I'm maybe I'm pigeonholing the kid. Maybe a few years under Jimmy Butler, maybe we can maybe we can see Oladipo change. I just don't think he plays that role well. I don't know, man. What this team needs? (laughs) I hate that this guy is the comp for every every single team that can't get the ball moving or every single pull. They need
0: a Chris Paul. And uh, I I hate saying that. I thought you were going to say Bradley Beal. Do you think they need a Chris Paul? You don't think that Jimmy okay. can be a floor general? Let me re- let me,
1: no, he can. They need somebody else. They need a Okay, let me rephrase this. They need a TJ McConnell, man. They need a
0: They need a Bradley Beal. Every team in the NBA needs a Bradley Beal.
1: Every team would love to have a Bradley... So what, do you think that their more need is a guy who can fill it up, and just get isolation
0: buckets moreover, or or what? No, I just think that Bradley Beal can fit in any offense. And I think that, like, the best version of Tyler Hero might be what they need, but they're not getting the best version of Tyler Hero right now, and they have so many guys who theoretically should be secondary ball handlers, from Dragic to Oladipo to Hero, and it just hasn't worked on the year all that much. But I would say, Logan... We've touched on this before. They just need to shoot the ball better. How are they 26 and three point percentage? Why are guys like Hero and Drogic so down across the board? That is just troubling to me.
1: Well, and that's it sucks, too, because we've seen Duncan obviously uh, kind of revitalize uh, where he was at mm-hmm. from early in the season. He's shooting 44% uh, since the break. And it sucks, man, because that is the counter of adding a guy like Victor to your lineup. He's a negative when he's shooting the rock, man. He's at 31%. Jimmy, for some reason, was was a pretty good three-point shooter back in the day. He's shooting 23%. There's too many non-shooters in
0: the lineup, man. Yeah, and that's the thing. Your two best players are non-shooters. That's going to affect you. But I'm going to say I will hold out hope that there is still a best version of this team that we haven't seen. And yes, they're 25th in offensive rating. They're 500 with a negative 1.6 net rating after 56 games. That's a pretty good indication of what a team is. They are still 24-16 when Jimmy plays. And... I liked some of the moves that they've made both in the offseason and midseason, but Bielitza hasn't mattered. Bradley's had no real offensive impact. And I just feel like we still need to really see Oladipo to say exactly what this team is. He's played four games here, put up 12 points per game on 37% shooting. That's very bad, but I do still think the best version of him It's not an ideal fit, but it is a talent boost and an offensive boost and a defensive boost to this team that makes me think that if everything gets going right, then they can turn it around. And Logan, part of the reason I'm so tentative is, last year I talked about how bad the Heat had been down the stretch of the regular season because they were 500 for like two-thirds of the year, and I said this team's actually not that great because... I don't know, they just didn't have enough punch offensively to compensate for what was an average defense, and then they got better on both ends. They were the best shooting team in basketball, and they locked in defensively. So I don't know. I think that that could happen again.
1: And I think the counter, I think the argument for uh, the Heat to be contenders, I think the case is that if we see more Goran Dragic, if Dragic mm-hmm. turns back the clock, because I mean, he's only been getting like 25 minutes a night. Mm-hmm if there is a gear in Goran Dragic, because I think he's the X-factor here for this team when it comes, like, like he was last season in the playoffs, mm-hmm. if we can see him, because he played 33 minutes, if we see that uptick in volume in minutes, and he can, you know, if he can fill that playmaking scoring role, I think that he'd have a
0: fighting chance, but it is all dependent on Goran Dragic, in my opinion. And he was a third star last year in the playoffs. He a 19-point-per-game scorer, incredibly reliable, huge offensive engine, and I think that So many things came together and were just a perfect storm for that team that probably were not replicable, but we have just seen everything go kind of in the worst possible direction for this team this season. But I don't know. I still hold out hope for a world in which they can push in the playoffs.
1: They are probably probably the last team on my
0: contender rankings, but Mm. yeah, there's a chance. Okay. There's a chance. I think that between them and the Celtics, I might have to lean Boston at this point, but it's very close and those are my fourth and fifth out east, no question. All right. So that is going to do it for us here today. As always, you can check out our podcast wherever you listen to it. Maybe you're listening to it right now, but Apple, Spotify, we have it across the board. You can check out our YouTube content where we do a bunch of video breakdowns. I just did one the other day on why the future is very bright for the Minnesota Timberwolves. Logan has a video coming up soon that you should all check out when it is ultimately out there. You can follow us on Twitter at nerd underscore sesh and on Instagram at nerd sesh. And with that, I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears.